Welcome to episode 16 of the Clean Sport Collective podcast. This is one of your hosts, Chris McClung. I'll be here for this intro to kick us off, but then I'll be handing the reins over to Shanna and Kara, who will be conducting the interview today with our guest, Tyler Hamilton. So with this interview, we're definitely switching things up, not only switching over to the sport of cycling, but also for the first time having an athlete on who has actually served doping suspensions. For those that don't know Tyler's name, you'll at least know the context under which he competed in the sport of cycling, which is that he was one of the support riders for Lance Armstrong for three of his tour victories in 1999, 2000, and 2001. He went on to compete independently on different teams against Armstrong, and he also won a gold medal at the Olympics in Athens in 2004. But during his career, he actually served two different suspensions, one that began in 2004 after he failed a drug test at the Vuelta de España, and then later he was convicted again in 2009 where he was given an eight-year suspension after becoming the national road race champion in 2008 here in the U.S. Since that time, he became, un, at least at the time, unwilling whistleblower in July of 2010 when he was subpoenaed to appear before a grand jury to talk about his performance-enhancing drug use and particularly to testify against Armstrong, and he became a critical witness in that case that ultimately took Lance Armstrong down as well as helped break the silence on the massive performance-enhancing drug use in the sport of cycling, especially during the late 90s and 2000s. So with that as an intro, I'll hand the reins over to Kara and Shanna, who will lead this one. Here we go. Welcome to the Clean Sport Collective podcast, Tyler Hamilton. We're excited to have you. Oh, thanks a lot for having me. Nice to be here. So going back, so the, you're our first cyclist that we've had on, and you are the first person that has doped on. And we're excited to learn from you and your background. But even going back to that, tell us where you're from, where'd you grow up, what sports did you play, how'd you get into cycling? Yeah, you know, I grew up in Marblehead, Massachusetts. So I'm an East Coaster. They call, us, call me a mass hole. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, growing up, yeah, I loved sports growing up. Um, but my real passion was ski ra- downhill ski racing. Uh, slalom, giant slalom. Uh, did well at that. Went to, went to a, like a boarding school up in New Hampshire so I could ski every day during the winter time. And then, yeah, um, went to over here to University of Colorado, skied for the University of Colorado ski team my freshman year, sophomore year. Let's see, yeah. We were dry land training in the fall and I broke my back, broke two vertebrae in my upper back and ironically training on mountain bikes. Went over the handlebars, and uh, yeah, I was couldn't ski race that winter. Was in bed for I don't know six to eight weeks, and when I got out of bed, they said I could ride a road bike. And so, little did I know, Boulder, Colorado, was a huge cycling town, and I'd done a little bit of riding before because you know ski racing in the summertime would do a lot of running and plyometrics and a little bit of bike riding. So, so that's what I did. It was kind of my outlet. And uh, I quickly learned that I was pretty good at it and lots of top amateurs here and professionals. And before I knew it, I was, you know, side by side with them riding. And 
And these guys and gals kept telling me that I was pretty good at it. And so I joined the CU cycling team. I think that was in 1992. And then uh, the following year, I won the collegiate national championships uh, in Boston. And then, yeah, U.S. national team the next year, and then professional the next year. So it happened pretty quick. So what is a transition like from college cycling to professional cycling? Oh, it was a huge transition. And, you know, I was super green my first year as a professional in 1995. Yeah, I was really, really green. Um, Yeah, just wide-eyed kid from Massachusetts, you know, rubbing elbows with some of the, you know, at that time, some of the races we did. Yeah, I was racing against some of the best guys in the world. Um, Yeah, it was a, a, a steep learning curve. But, but I, yeah, I, I improved a lot over the first, uh, yeah, those first three, four years. Yeah. So tell us about your family. I mean, I saw one time that you said that you, your family values, your Hamilton value, family values were grit and honesty. So what is your family life like? Yeah. Two great parents, awesome older brother, older sister. And, um, I mean, they pretty much just let us run around feral as kids, but you know, the two things were like, you know, tell the truth and, uh, you know, don't give up, be, be tough. And, you know, my parents, uh, you know, we weren't religious or anything, but they, they said our religion, our church was in the mountains. And, uh, so yeah, we're outside a lot running around and, um, but yeah, they, whenever I, I messed up or I, you know, I lied about something that was like by far the biggest punishments for me happened then. And, um, so for me, when I, you know, fast forward many years to, to, to having to come clean and tell my parents that I had been doping for many, many years and I'd been lying to them, not lying to everybody, but you know, it hurt the most to tell them for sure, for sure. So you, you said you were pretty green at first. When did you first realize that people were doping and cycling, that people were using? Yeah. Yeah. You know, that was back before the internet. So, um, every once in a while you'd pick up a Vela news and, uh, you'd piece through it and there'd be a small little blurb on, you know, some European pro or a race over in Europe. And, and typically it would just kind of get, go away. Like and they'd fight, they'd fight it and it would, it would, um, they wouldn't have a penalty penalty or anything. Um, so my first two years as a pro 95 and 96, I was, I was on a domestic professional team but we raced in europe a little bit um maybe 25 percent of the time and yeah it was a, a huge a drastic change at the, the speed of the peloton you know racing here in the states i was pretty good you know 90, 1996 i was the first alternate for the olympic team um i won a bunch of races but then you go over to europe and it would just be a different level different level but i just figured you know they were that much better and you know, I had a lot of work to do, but it wasn't until 1997, my third year as a professional. That's, that's when the team, uh, we received a a bump up in our budget and the team decided to become a European team or a European based team. And, uh, and the goal was to ride in the tour de France that year. So our only way to, to, to get into the tour was to, um, be accepted as a wildcard team. And that meant we had to have really good results in the spring so they brought in a lot of good European riders, really top riders, Ekimov, this guy Baffy, JC Raban, this French guy. 
Um, yeah, a bunch of European riders, European staff, European doctors, massage therapists. You know where this is going, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And yeah, that was when it was first introduced to me, like, um, I think third month into the seat, third month of racing. Um, just finished like a super hard week long stage race in Southern Spain. I was just exhausted. You, you know, the Peloton, I was just hanging on for dear life pretty much the whole time. I mean, it was in the early season. I wasn't that fit yet, you know, coming, coming here from Boulder and, uh, but still though, it just felt like just a different level. And I was laying on, I just finished the stage race. Uh, I was laying on my bed like a starfish and just dead. And uh, one of the team doctors, I guess the team doctors were, had been talking about me and one of them came in and was praising me how well I'd been doing, how, you know, how much I'd been suffering through it and, and getting by. And, and he knew I was super green. But then he, he was wearing this like fly fishing vest and he pulled out this little uh, like red, red egg-shaped testosterone or red egg-shaped egg pill. I didn't know what it was. But, and he said, this is, uh, this is for your health. This, you need to take this and it'll help you recover. It'll be out of your system in a day. And yeah. Did you know what it was? He took, then he, yeah, he told me what it was. And he told me that it, it was, it, he said it wasn't doping, you know, although, you know, I, I knew what it was. Knew what it was, um, but yeah, this was a well-respected doctor. He'd worked with huge champions over the years, and uh, yeah, I didn't really think about it. I just took it at that moment. I swallowed it. Yeah. Were you? Were you like? I mean, I read your book a couple times, and yeah. I know you talk about like it's almost acceptance to be offered in, right? That you were like, yeah, 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 level. yeah, yeah. So were you sure. like when it was happening? Were you like, oh my gosh, this is actually happening, or were you just like? Like, what was going through your mind then? In that hotel room? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was, I was a little bit numb to it. It was, I mean, I knew it was happening on the, at that, that point in the season. I'd seen enough things, you know, like I've heard your story and you guys saw some things. I was starting to see some things and I was pretty green and pretty naive, but I started to realize like things were happening. Certain guys were getting, you know, these little white lunch bags after the races before they're going home and. You know, I wasn't getting one of these white lunch bags. And then certain guys, you know, one of my first races, I remember uh, a veteran rider, a veteran Italian rider who's super talented, like bringing, bringing a little like one of those blood spinning machines to test your hematocrit, a little like small little thing. And I was thinking to myself, what's he doing? And what, you know, we start racing tomorrow for a week and like, why, why are you testing your hematocrit? But obviously we know now. Um, where were, was I going? I was just gonna ask you about like your emotions. Like, oh yeah, you know I was pretty numb to it. Like I okay. took it, I just swallowed it because you know this is a. I really looked up to this guy, and you know I felt like this is what I had to do, and you know. Not till later did I really realize what I did. You know. Later that in that same time period, or yeah, later yeah, yeah, like in your a, life? a day, a day later, I was like, oh my god, you know, yeah. That's so where did it, it go from there? So you take the pill. Oh, yeah. And that was it. You know, looking back, it was nothing compared to where I had no idea where it was going. You know, I thought honestly, I thought that season was like probably my first and last year racing in Europe. So I didn't know. I didn't know. I was excited. I was hoping to ride in the Tour de France and I had to make those 25 guys on the team. And they only selected at that time. There was nine riders that rode the tour. Nine? Yeah, nine. So was it so testosterone this was my for a while? Test um, testosterone for a while that eventually led to, you know, small injections of EPO. Yep. 
What yep. did you feel? And yeah, that was you, you know it was all administered by the doctors then. Oh. So yeah, it wasn't. Yeah, it was all supplied by the team and administered by the team, transported by the team, all of it. Did you feel and benefits I, right away from the testosterone? I did. I did. Yeah, I recover. I mean, you know, I was exhausted after that race, and we had a race like I think three days later, or something like that, and a one day race, and I felt yeah pretty good. Oh, yeah, all things considered, yeah. And then yeah. when did it go more from there? It was a few months later before before riding the tour. There, my hematocrit was low. You know, I'd been racing super hard all spring, and they were like, "You got to come up a few points before racing the tour." And if I had, you know. If I'd said no to any of that, I, I w- they wouldn't have select, selected me for sure, you know, because maybe I could have raced well for the first week in the tour. But if you're, you know, Paniagua, you're bread and wa- on bread and water, they're going to select somebody else. For you said sure. what this meant. What does that mean? Paniagua. Oh, yeah, and bread water. and water. Yeah, it means clean. Yeah. Actually, that's another thing that happened in the 97 season, like early on before I started to, to dope. I'd hear these, you know, I was super green, didn't know any of the languages, but. I'd hear people kind of talking about me behind this, you know, thinking I, I was out of earshot. And uh, they'd say my name and then say, Paniagua. And I'd be like, what's this word they keep saying about me? You know, I didn't, I had no idea. And I was like, I remember looking up in a, in a, a French dictionary, couldn't figure it out. I thought it was just one word, but it was Paniagua, you know, bread and water. So they were mentioning to me, they were, you know, I'd hear my name like, oh, he won't finish today, he's Paniagua, or, you know, he'll never survive here, he's Paniagua. And then other times people were like, oh, man, he's doing really well. And, and on top of that, he's Paniagua. You know, so stuff like that. And I was like, what is this? And eventually, yeah, I figured it out. So what team were you racing on at this time? That was the U.S. Postal Team, yep. And what was the culture like around this team? Um, in 97? Um, everything was new. We were like kind of a brand new European team. You know, we had existed in 95 and 96, you know, 95 under a different title sponsor. 96 was, uh, the postal service came in to be our title sponsor. Um, but those years we were kind of like the, the, this young, um, domestic team, super scrappy, you know, low budget team. And then by 97, it was like, you know, it was a, bigger budget team we didn't have like the big buses yet or anything like that we were still kind of the low on the totem pole there in europe but um but yeah all these big riders came in everybody you know five six different languages at the dinner table at at, at the races um but yeah i mean it was a lot of you know fun fun people you know interesting i mean I, the whole time i was just like wide-eyed and wow this is pretty cool and i'm get to be here i mean minus the doping part you know that was yeah it's something i just kind of buried in the back of my head and just i told myself you know i i have to do this this is what everybody else is doing and this is uh just part part of part of the deal part of the deal so were at this time were there still doctors that were administering and giving you testosterone and epo or were you guys doing it on your own oh yeah 97 the whole season whole season it was all doctors yeah okay yeah yep. by 98 yeah they started giving me the little white lunch bag and you know bringing it home with me and doing it i mean home in, in my in europe sure you know in between the races so it wasn't like you were doping all season long you know right but it you know if your focus was the tour that you know they they'd want to bump your hematocrit up some 
a little bit before arriving at the Tour de France, you know. In 97, there was still no uh, EPO test. So you could really, you could do it, you know, you could do it right before a test. And it wouldn't, you wouldn't be positive. The and only so- thing then was there was a 50% limit. So, you know, I think that's why that individual was checking his hematocrit there. We used my roommate there before a race. But yeah, they'd, you know, my hematocrit was, I don't know. At, you know, after racing a super hard spring, I think at one point it was like 39. So they, you know, bumped it up to, I think, 42 or 43 before racing in the tour. Yep. What but was? Ba- yeah, but, but back then, you know, you know, I had no idea what, what was coming, you know, what, what that was leading to, you know. What so. was testing like back then? Because I think in your book you talk about how, you know, later on you saw to started their auto competition testing. But yeah, at this time, it, there, was yeah, there anything like that? Yeah, it didn't like start, I think, the year 2000. Yep. So before it was kind of the wild west days back then, you know, very little testing. Yeah, no, no out of competition testing. I don't think they even tested that much, even at the races. I mean, they test every day at the races, but maybe three people. So sure, not that. Anti doping's come a long way since then. That was, you know, the 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 amount of performance enhancing drugs back then. It was just rampant. You know, my first tour, 97, I'd be, you know, 200 riders. I'd be surprised if five were clean. So I really mean that. I am, no doubt. Yeah. So how did that culture over time progress? Did you see it getting to be a culture that just got darker and darker as more, as you guys were getting better and more drugs were introduced? Yeah, it got darker and darker and more serious and less fun, way less fun, you know. My favorite years were the, you know, climbing up climbing up to get to that level really yeah then it became so serious and so stressful and you know i spent a lot of time in the middle of the night looking at the ceiling just you know wondering what 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 the heck was i doing and and i was you know so freaked out that someday you know there was everybody was more or less was doing it and i thought it was way too big of a secret for it not to come out and that stressed me out so i lost a lot of sleep over that but I, you know, but I did it and continued to do it and did more of it. You said in the past yeah. that, you know, your teammate Lance Armstrong was more cavalier about it. Uh, yeah. Where you felt more like you had to hide it a little bit. Why do you think that was? Um, I don't, you know, I think he had been, he had started doping a little bit earlier than me. I, I believe he said he started in 1993. So maybe he was just, and I think he, it was, he was more used to just being open and upfront about it, you know. I don't know. I didn't like to talk about it in front of anybody and, you know. Do you think he was more protected? I mean, eventually, yeah, we figured that out. Yeah, he was. He was. And who is, like, perpetuating this culture? Is it from your team? Is it from your governing body, UCI? Is it from the sponsors? Like, where is this coming from, this dark culture? It started with my team. It started with my team. But, you know, I believe... Yeah, I mean the UCI knew about it. The governing body of the sport knew about it. I, you know, to say they had no idea how rampant it was is you know, that's a lie. That's a lie. But yeah, it was. Uh, and they, I don't know. They didn't seem like they were that concerned about it, for sure. What about your so. sponsors? I mean, who were you sponsored by at the time through the postal? Service? Uh, the postal service was our main sponsor. Then we had, you know, secondary sponsors, you know, bike sponsors, equipment sponsors. Um, I can, yeah, I don't know. Um, 
I don't think every sponsor knew, but some sponsors knew for sure. For sure. And yeah, they didn't, they didn't leave the team. Yeah. He talked even, I mean, going back to the Olympics about standing on that podium with a gold medal and it not being what you thought. Oh yeah. 2004. Yeah. What was that like? Yeah. You know, I, I loved the Olympics growing up. I, I remember watching the 1980 Olympics as a kid. You know, I was what, nine years old. And yeah, it was in Lake Placid, New York. I remember Eric Hyden winning like five gold medals, the U.S. hockey team winning, you know, beating the Soviets. And I was like, that is so cool. You know, I don't know what sport I'm going to be in, but I want to be in the Olympics. And, you know, I want to stand. I mean, the ultimate would, would be to stand on the top, on the top step of the podium and hear the national anthem. Yeah. And then I got there. I stood on the top, you know. It wasn't the same, not even close, not even close. Yeah. It was interesting. You talk about how in 2003, you essentially, this is before the Olympics, but you essentially yep. like accomplished all these things you had dreamt of. Yeah, and yet after that season, yeah. you had horrible depression. Can you talk oh, yeah. to us a little yeah. bit about that? Like, yeah. it looks like you should be so happy. Yeah. On the outside, you know, I was on top of the world, you know. In 2003, at one point in the season, I was, you know, they had a point system and had a really good spring. So at one point in the season, I was the number one ranked rider in the world, like just for that one little ranking period. And yeah, I had a great Tour de France and won a stage there. But yeah, the season ended. You know, I, I decided to switch teams at the end of the year, but I really liked the team I was on, Team CSC. But it was time, it was time to make a change. And, you know, that, that kind of rocked my world a little bit and you know, all the secrets and all that, it was just like adding up. And at the end of the season, I was just exhausted. And I remember I was, you know, this, my season had ended, but I was like trying to train for like another month before I took my like off season, you know, three to four weeks off the bike. And I remember like getting all ready, getting all geared up. This is, I was living back in Massachusetts then. And I remember just like, just like, Oh, I'm going to just lie down on this couch for a second. And then just, yeah, couldn't get up. Couldn't, it was just like having a heavy blanket over you. And I think it was just everything just adding, you know, long, hard season and probably, you know, a lot of stress over these last few years. And then, um, yeah, I, uh, my wife at the time, Haven, was like, you need to go talk to somebody. So, yeah, that's when I realized I was kind of suffering with depression, you know. I mean, I think looking back now, it's a lot of it was situational. And, you know, there's a lot of huge stress and, you know, you know, and I was still pretty young then and like, you know, dealing with massive amounts of pressure. Yeah. So tell us more about now that turn of when it was going under investigation and you had to talk. Oh, yeah, that, that was probably the, you know. One of the best things that ever, probably the best, one of the best things that ever happened to me, for sure, was being forced to talk. There was a um, federal investigation going on. I was, you know, had my fingers crossed that, you know, they weren't going to come knocking on my door. And sure enough, and I was, yeah, I was here in Boulder at the time. And yeah. Um, a guy by the name of Jeff Nowitzki, he, uh, with the FBI, he contacted me. He first asked me to come in under what's called a proffer, you know, where you can come in voluntarily and you can have a lawyer by your side and they can tell you kind of 
like you're a little bit protected, I would say, but I was still, I was too stubborn and too, um, set on like protecting, you know, the secret, my old teammates, you know, the whole, I didn't want to be that guy who. Talk to us about Omerta. Oh, the, I didn't want to break the Omerta really. I mean, it's almost like being in a fraternity or a sorority and, uh, I just felt like even though I'd been caught and I'd been you know, really, my life had really just been kind of bumping on the, you know, bumping down super low and down the, the basement level. Just, I've been really just uh, struggling, but I still felt like, you know, I had to keep this secret and I'm going to, you know, go to the grave with these secrets. Um, but yeah, so they, you know, I was the, the Omerta, the, which is uh, the code of, you know, the code of silence, you know. It was, uh, even if you did get caught, you were expected not to talk. And, uh, yeah. So I was still, that was in, what, 2010. And I was still, for whatever reason, like, yeah, I don't, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to talk. I don't want to talk. I don't want to, you know, even though my life's been, like, thrown upside down, like, I don't want anybody else's, else to suffer. But, yeah, then I was, then, you know, I didn't, so I said no to the voluntarily going in with a lawyer. And then they were like, they sent me a subpoena. Which is as you know as serious as, as it gets, you know. So it was like at that point I'd like backed up and backed up and backed up, and it was either like jump off the cliff or tell the truth. And yeah, it was like I went into this Los Angeles courtroom, stood there for like seven hours and just unloaded did everything. You, told did everything. you tell your family before you? I did. You know, yes, yes. I, um, when was that? No, I hadn't told them yet. No, I had not told them yet. Um, let's see. So yeah, I sat there for seven hours and when I came out of the court, you know, it was like I had a hundred pound backpack coming in and then when I left, it was just that weight was gone. So I knew from that moment moving forward, like I knew what I had to do and I knew I had to be open and honest. And soon thereafter, I had an opportunity to talk to 60 minutes and, uh, I did an interview with them, and just before it aired, just the, I think it was the day before it aired, I told my family, my brother, my sister, and my parents. How was that? Brutal. Tell brutal, us about that. Brutal. Yeah, just hard, like, you know, that's, that's the worst thing, you know. At the end of the, you know, why do we do all these things? Why do you, like, you know, I was always, like, an athlete, and, like, you always want to, you know, why do you push yourself so hard? It wasn't to make money or, you know, I guess that's nice at the end of the day, but it was always to, like, you want to make your parents proud, you know. And then it's just, it was rough, rough. So, what do you think about those accomplishments now, looking back at them? Yeah, I don't really. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, they're taint, tainted asterisk, or yeah, I don't. You know, as far as I'm concerned, they can. From the minute I took that first red testosterone pill, they can delete it all. You know, from that point moving forward. You know, even if you did, st you know, some people say they doped for a little while and then stopped and it's like but you still have have you've got up to a higher level because you were doping and that that residual effect you know helps you right so yeah why don't you i don't think, really think about it and why don't you think yeah. more people say that i mean like yes. that's you're just telling the truth and you're owning it why don't you think more people do that um i don't know you know um, you know we all have any everybody's got an ego like you know but some just like holding on to that, just maybe holding on. And I, I don't know. I get. I mean, hey, if I if I never was like pushed to to tell the truth, I don't know where I'd be today. I'd probably be living. Yeah, my life would probably be awful. I'd be, you know, 
sitting there with all these massive secrets probably just tearing me up from the inside out but yeah it's helped me a lot being open and honest has helped me tremendously and you know it was really that the turning point for me was you know getting subpoenaed going in and telling the whole friggin' truth and it, it, it changed my life and it changed my life and i knew from that mo- moment on it's like this is what i got to do and, you know i'm moving on in my life but i'll always i'll always you know share my story and help you know i know i've helped people make the right choice for sure you know? for sure yeah. i do think it's important for people to understand how hard it is to do that to tell the truth because oh, yeah. it's it's collateral damage it's not just like the pe- it's first of all it's your teammates then it's their spouses then it's potentially their children then it's their parents it's so heavy goes, yeah it goes deep and it i just think like most people don't understand that it's not just like you're saying i saw this one person it becomes this huge thing with people you've spent time with years lift years with people who have been like family to you and it's it is so it's such a big burden to bear yeah and you become so close to all your teammates you know they're like brothers and you know and sisters you know we had plenty of female staff members and you know and yeah you didn't you didn't you know although i was affected i got caught and all that i didn't want to you know i was one of the unfortunate ones i thought like okay but you know I got to protect them. I got to protect them. And I felt a real sense of, yeah, I just have to do it. And although I was living in a, yeah, although I wasn't happy and, you know, I was like, I got to, you know, I'm, you know, I'm from New England. We're pretty tough, you know, sometimes to a detriment, you know, and like, I just, whatever, like I can deal with it and I'll just keep chugging along and, uh, but yeah, it was a ble- huge, huge blessing in disguise. I think even from the outside, not being in the world of cycling, I think that's where it gets a little bit tainted for us as outsiders, is even the people that have come forward, they're like, well, everyone was doing it. So there's this justification behind yeah, it. That, yeah. And you don't have that. And why, I guess that's what's why we want you on. And uh, the fact that, you know, being a whistleblower, I mean, you have, you share that with Kara, like, well, yeah. minus the fact that she's a clean athlete, but yeah. I I guess like two questions. Why do you think that there's there's this always this justification behind it and not and not that feeling like I messed up and um, it doesn't matter if people were all doing it or not, right? You tell your kids that I don't care if everybody right. wants to jump off the cliff. You're right. <laughs> I mean, I think everybody wants to. You know, that's the the excuse is everybody was doing it. So I, you know, if you were at that level, it was either do it or you know jump on a plane and go home or, or do your best to do it clean. But you know, everybody around you is doing it and it's going to be, the writing's kind of on the wall. Um, so I think it was kind of an easy out, you know, I mean, that's how I justified it for a while, you know? And it was like, okay. But yeah, but it was in the back of my head and it always would creep into my thoughts and, you know, it would wake me up at night and yeah, I, I always knew it was wrong. Some people have said, have said that like you know they didn't feel like it was wrong because everybody was doing it and and it was a level playing field and none none of that's true none of that's true you know the more the better you did the more money you made made you know more sophisticated doctors you could work with and coaches and all that and um, so yeah it wasn't a level playing field no I think people need to realize that when they say well just make doping legal there's still yeah, a level silly. there's still I different think, playing fields yeah that's on that. I think you had said that I'd heard on one of your 
recent podcast. Week. That's week. It is week. It is week. It is week. It is week. Like reading about your history and reading your book, it just is so stressful. Like I feel stressed reading it. Oh, all man. the people you had to keep in line, all the secrets you had to keep. So, so I'm just wondering, like, when you finally had that meeting where they were like, you've been caught. Yeah. I mean, I was so stressed out reading your book, even though oh, I already were. know the end result. <laughs> yeah. So what was yeah. like, what, what was that feeling? Like it's finally the house of cards is coming down. Like, what are you thinking in that moment? I mean, although like, you know, on the, like I lost a hundred pound backpack, like what the huge weight off my back, there was still like huge consequences to pay. Cause like lots, you know, yeah. I mean, I disappointed so many people, you know, my family included. So, there was a lot of work to be done, really, and you know it's still not done, not not even close. Um, but yeah, just kind of one step at a time, one step at a time. But yeah, there were huge consequences and lots of people, especially early on, because they thought it was like just me and a few others. And yeah, lots of people were pit, just really angry with me. I had a lot of you know, hate mail, I had death threats, I had all all of the above. Yeah. And I was living in Boulder here at the time, ton, you know, lots of hairy eyeballs, you know, you could just feel it. You could feel it. And justifiably so, justifiably so for sure. As you were fighting your, um, positive test after it was after Athens, correct? After Athens. Yeah. Um, how did you find the lawyer you had? I mean, your lawyer has ended up. Yeah. There weren't really so many people. Yeah. Howard Jacobs. Yeah. You know, he was kind of the only, he was, uh, somebody at USA cycling recommended him and, um, there weren't really any other um, lawyers like that, so he seemed like he he knew a lot about it. And um, yeah, you know, I wish going back. Yeah, I wish I'd told the truth and been honest. And, you know, it saved me, my family, a lot of stress. And you know, I could have just you know restarted my life then and start really started from the bottom and started working my way up. But instead, I you know decided to try to protect myself, my teammates. really the whole sport by not telling the truth and then it's just yeah it was just a downward spiral did you guys did you really believe that you would be able to win i was told that's what i was told yeah Yeah. i I was told yeah and then i appealed because they said you have a really good chance and all that so i kind of just followed what they i was kind of told to do really i wish i've talked to travis about this uh you know, I wish they had somebody had sat me down like right away. So it was, I had the positive test and then right away they were like, did you do it or not? So you had to decide right away. I wish they gave me two days to like sit back and like take a deep breath and maybe had like a mentor of some sort come in and like, hey, this, you know, if you did do it, like this is the deal. Like it, your life's not over. Like you can, you can be okay. Like you might, it might be hard for a little while, but you can be okay and like. Let's let's really think about this. Like, there was no time for that. There was no time for that. So it's like I picked my side and I went with it. Yeah, I'm ashamed about that. I wish, I wish that hadn't happened. I wish I could delete all that. But yeah, I can't. I you can't. can't. No, but I can't. You can but talk I do about think. It. But I, yeah, for sure, for sure, for sure. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry to all you guys. For I'm sorry to everybody. For yeah, yeah. It's but yeah, it's the truth. It's uh. It was an ugly time, an ugly time. I think, but I think that's what's important is that you, you took the traditional path and you listened to all the people around you. And yeah, 
I mean, everybody told me I had to fight it. Yeah, and I'm not saying like that was the right thing to do, or I understand, but I mean that that is what happened, and now you can just what you just said. I wish there had been a mentor. I mean, those are all things that moving forward. Like I think about you being in Europe, and I think about this doctor bringing you this little red pill, and I think about everyone around you getting these white bags, and I think what could have intercepted there to make that go a different way. Yeah. Well, but it was the whole system. It was the whole system, you know, like, you know, the, that doctor was just doing his job. He was just doing his job. You know, he'd been probably doing it for years and years. He'd worked with many big champions who had, I would assume were doping also. And, you know, every, you know, and if he didn't do his job, you know, they'd replace him with somebody else who would, you know, do those things. That's, that's the way it worked over there. You know, not only did riders change teams, staff changed teams too. So like, you know, for maybe two years they were with a postal team. The next two years they're with, you know, the Festina team or the, right. the Mape team. Yeah. So they everybody kind of, and all the riders shifted, the Swanier shifted, mechanics. So, you know, because of that, because of all the mixing up, everybody knew. The secret, the secret was, everybody knew the secret, you know. Right. Yeah. It is amazing. I know, that right? it was like... Right, That's but so of course, many- but at some point it was going to come out, right? right. Like it's impossible. It's no, too, way too big of a secret. Like, way too big of a secret. How can this keep going? And that was my, you know, one of my biggest concerns. And like, I did not, I did not want to get caught. I, I mean, I couldn't wait till my career was over. Right. Really, it, that, it got to that point. Really. Tell us about when the tester showed up and you knew you were glowing. What does glowing oh yeah, mean? glowing? Yeah, there was one time I don't. Um, when you were in Massachusetts, I was in right? Mass. Yep. Yep. So there was a time there, I lived in Boulder pretty much majority of the time. I kind of moved back to Mass for a year or two, um, you know, would be in Europe most of the time. But it was in the, I think it was like, I was back for a week or 10 days. And yeah, I don't know if I had taken a testosterone pill or a shot of EPO or something, but it felt like it was too close. Like, I don't know, I wouldn't have been able to sleep if I took the test, so. Uh, one of the out of competition testers knocked on the door boom 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 and I knew right away the way they knocked <laughs> and uh, yeah I hit the deck hit, went to the floor I was like I didn't want to take the test I'd rather take a have a missed test than, uh, than that yeah. I mean what's going through your mind you're literally uh, laying heart, on the floor yeah, heart your rate home. 200 <laughs> yeah you know just like no yeah yeah, and once in a while, yeah, once in a while you get yourself, in a, you know, I mean, it, I wasn't the only one to do that. Oh, I'm sure, I'm know? sure. But are you thinking like, this is crazy? Oh, well, yeah, when Tester showed up, I lived in Girona, Spain for most of my career, European career. And uh, when Tester was, would show up at one person's house, phone calls everywhere, text messages, everybody would warn, you know, that's what you did. You protected, you protected. It was the Omerta, you know. Mm-hmm. So within 10 minutes, everybody knew, you know. And you, you know, whether you're on the same team or not on the same team, you know, you looked out for each other. And you said it was pretty easy to like, beat the system before. The, you know, the, I didn't know how any of this stuff worked. You know, I didn't, I didn't seek it out. But the, these, these doctors would tell you exactly what you could take, when you could take it. You know, they give you the cheat sheet. Say, so if you stay within these parameters, you're going to be fine. So, yeah, it was... Yeah, I, and I, I assume most of the riders kind of followed those 
and again, right, everybody's changing teams every few years. So like, and this, and then even doc, doctors of opposing teams, they trade little secrets. If a new test is coming out or this, uh, you know, or if the, uh, the vampires, as they call them, the blood testers would come in the morning before a race, everybody would get warned, you know, all the other, you know, every, everybody's calling everybody. So it was a big, it was a kind of a huge fraternity or sorority really. And, uh, everybody looked after each other. I do find that fascinating about cycling. Like you were talking about one of the tours where Lance crashed and then you got, I don't know if it was Ulrich or someone to slow down and let Lance catch back up. Oh yeah. And I'm like, in running, we'd be like, suckers. suckers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's like, <laughs> and it's just very yeah. interesting how you're all like attacking each other and competitive with each other, but there is this weird protection and respect amongst everybody. It was kind of an unwritten rule, you know? The leader goes down, you know, if you're in the yellow jersey or whatever color jersey it is, yeah. Leader of a race goes down, you, you wait. This, that situation was like, it was towards the end of a race. So it's, you know, I think these days they would have kept going. But it was on the final climb, but early in the climb to the finish. And, um, yeah. So I guess I want to go back to the whistleblower because you said it was so easy to, you know, manipulate the system and not get caught. And you were tested hundreds of times and you didn't get caught. But yeah. ultimately, it went down to whistleblowers and yeah. being called in and telling the truth. What... What do you think that role is of a Wessel player and how has it affected your life, both positively and negatively? Yeah. What's the role of a... Yes. Like, I mean, do you think that's very important in, in all sports? To oh, it's take so in? important. It's so... Imp I mean, as we know, like, I mean, the testing has gotten a lot better since, you know, the Wild West days in, 19, in the 90s. But there's still loop, giant loopholes. I mean, I mean, maybe not giant loopholes, but loopholes, right? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. So... Um, Loopholes are still there, so there are rider athletes that are doping and getting away with it. You know, if they're following the, you know, the new rules, the new cheat sheet rules. Right. You know, because I'm sure every year it's a you gotta adjust those rules. Right. Like, but it's still just it's, like when you were there, they don't they can't test you between like eleven and six. So. Yeah, yep. There you go. Yeah. Yep. Um. So yeah, and I think I heard on your first podcast with Travis. You know that is su super important. Like what you guys did massive incredible you know we need more it's yeah yeah we need more whistleblowers and people coming forward and being open and honest but i mean even your teammate lance armstrong saying that you know threatening that you paid somebody to have 60 minutes come out or you know threatening oh, yeah. you at, yeah. yeah in aspen i mean that's really hard i mean how have you lived with that over the years um i mean yeah early on it was hard you know it was it was pretty hard but yeah you know, time heals, time heals. And, you know, the further you get away with it, uh, the further you get away from it, you know, the, you can look back on it and kind of have a, more of a just objective mind. And, you know, I have a little, I'm 48 now, you know, it's like I have a little bit of wisdom. I've gone around the block a few times. Uh, but yeah, you know, that was back when Lance was still denying the truth and he was pissed. He was pissed. And, you know, I think he probably regrets that. I haven't talked to him, but he probably regrets that. Yeah, That's kind of you. <laughs> um, the 60 Minutes program, we watched it. We were training in Park oh, yes, City. Um, I don't think we had had USAs yet because it was in May, I believe. But we, we watched it, and then we went out to dinner with our coach at the time afterwards who said, who said that you were a liar and that you just were um, pissed. You wanted to write a book, and you wanted to sell your book. And... 
but we watched it. We had never met you, obviously, and we were concerned for your well-being. Yeah. Tell us about that because you kept redirecting every question. You know, they wanted you to talk about Lance. You kept redirecting everything back to yourself. And I just remember feeling like, like worried about you, your mental health. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. You know, I mean, it was just a crazy time. I don't know. I felt like I was in a weird, bizarre movie or something. And, you know, there I am walking with, I think it was Scott Pelley, you know, talking to him on 60 Minutes there and talking about my crazy career career and all the doping. Um, yeah, there was a lot of a fallout for sure afterwards. You know, again, that was before Lance had come forward. And so there were, you know, all his fans hated my guts, hated my guts, you know. But yeah, you know, luckily, I mean, I'm super lucky because not everybody that's gone through stuff that I, like I've gone through have had like a good support system, you know, and some aren't here today. You know, that's right. Pantani, Jimenez, Frank Vandenbroek, you know, so I feel very lucky, a good, good support system. So yeah, I leaned on my friends and family a lot for sure. But yeah, Would you do it again. Oh, Going not back. a chance, not a chance, not a ch- I probably wouldn't pick up the bike. And would you... But then, you know, but maybe I'm supposed to be here right now. You know? I was going to say, would you be, would you say, would you tell the truth like you did then? Are you, did you regret it at all in coming forward with everything? Oh, not at all. Not at all. I, um, yeah, not at all. I mean, I handed my gold medal back with pride and, you know, that's one of the, I got a nice letter from president of the IOC thanking me and, you know, that's pretty cool. I've saved that letter. Because technically you, know, you didn't have to hand that medal back, correct? I technically didn't. And, you know, they probably would have fought me on that a little bit. But, you know, I was a little bit bummed out. They just immediately gave it to the second place guy. But, you know, say la vie, say la vie. But, you know, they can live the, they can live with that. But, um, but yeah, there were some tough years there. Tough, crazy years there where um, every day was different and, there were some scary moments for sure. When you were, um, you know, fighting USADA and going through CAS, who was paying for your defense? Were you paying for it? I paid for it all. Yeah, you I lost did. a ton of money. Yeah. But maybe it's karma, you're right? I lost, I mean, I'm starting over financially, everything. You know, I went through, you know, and all that was tricky on, you know, on a, with a relationship. It was super hard. So, yeah, I've gone through one long marriage and a quick short marriage. Yeah, I got married, kind of a band aid marriage. And then, yeah, that ended quick. And, you know, I've taken some time just to, you know, I live in Missoula, Montana now. It's a little bit, life's a little bit slower, you know, um, taking some time. The last, you know, I've been up there for seven years and, you know, it's felt like a little bit of like a, a retreat a little bit, you know, I, I need to get out of here. You know, it's like I was in the middle of it and I just needed to kind of, kind of find myself again, really. And, and stepped away from cycling. You know, there were years where besides a few charity cycling events, I didn't ride my bike at all, you know. But that must be so hard. Like for us, running is yeah. so much of, of who we yeah. are. And like when we went public, you know, like just so many friendships ended and so yeah. many relationships and it's yeah. so hard. And so I just, I mean, it, now you're through it, obviously. But yeah. it, at the time you had to feel so alone. Oh, uh, yeah, for sure. And I still do sometimes, you know, I mean, I have old teammates who won't talk to me, you know, but. But I don't regret what I did. And I don't, you know, if, if you lose friends, then they're not your true friends. You know, you know, the, the, one of the best things about all this was like, you know, who your true friends are. Like, I know who my friends are. And, you know, a lot of guys have said that, 
who have kind of gone through what I've gone through. And you guys probably, you guys know who your friends are, I bet. Yep. I mean, I feel like I could talk to, for Adam Goucher a little bit on this, that he's not really a fan of track and field anymore because of all of oh. how dirty it is. Are you a fan of cycling anymore? Um, for a while, I was not. I, I was not. I didn't follow it all. I tried not to follow it all. Like, you know, I kind of hated it. hated it. Um, but I think there's been enough time that it's – I've started to follow it again. And, you know, I watched the tour. This Not the whole tour, but I'd watch like, the last week of the tour, like those mountain stages – I followed them. I followed those stages a little bit. And it was exciting to see. You know, I, I look at it a little bit differently now, you know. But it, you know, it's a beautiful sport. Incredibly hard. Um, and I just try to not think about the doping and, you know, see it for what it is. But it's, yeah, it'll never be the same for me. Oh, it's, it won't ever be like, you know, when I was a little, when I was, you know, freshman here see you boulder and watching the tour de france on tv and you know, i was a huge fan now it's i look at it a little bit different you know and a lot of the characters are still in the sport you know right. part of the merits of you know now they're working for teams or owning lots of team owners now or, and you know unfortunately they haven't all come and told the truth you know i wish there was a time there that they were saying that maybe they'd do some sort of uh have a maybe a year where people could come forward and there wouldn't be any penalty and I kind of wish they did that, you know. I think we'd know a lot more about what I don't think we know en enough about what happened in the past to to make it to yeah. I feel like we need more information about the past to really move forward in the right direction. So, I mean, not to put you on the spot, but yeah. when you watch the tour now, do you feel like it's cleaner than when you were there? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I'm pretty far removed from the sport super far removed and i think i'd probably be the last person that somebody would say to tell me one of those secrets but um yeah we know it's not 100 percent clean because they're still catching riders you know and typically you know they only catch a certain percent of the people that are actually doping so um, in our world of track and field we just had a prominent coach get a ban a four-year ban i just read that yep and I, I guess drawing on your experience and everything that you've gone through, if we're in this quote, darker time of track and field, which I think it's better because it's more of a full exposure time for track and field, where, how do you, how do you create a sport now? Like that can gain hope and get cleaner. Like, do you have any? Yeah. Education, education. I in what that forms with that. do you think? I don't know. Like, I wish I, I wish I had somebody like me, had, I'd heard, Somebody like me speak before I, you know, mm -hmm. jumped over the pond and went to Europe for sure. Um, but I think we need to talk about it more, be more open about it. And, you know, I mean, really work on the, the future generations because um, if, if we don't fix the problem now, it's like they're going to be. I mean, we I, for me, I feel like I have an obligation to like to give back to 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 let, let these people know what some of these crossroads could be moving forward, you know? Um, I mean, I've worked, I have a small little coaching business. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I know I've helped people make the right choice for sure. Oh, you have, I mean, and, and pretend Karen Adams son Colt oh. doesn't want to be a runner, but now he wants to be a he cyclist. He doesn't want to be a runner. He would much rather be a cyclist, honestly. But so. pretend oh. he is, what would, what would yes. you tell, 
What would you tell them, right? What would you tell parents? Like, how would you navigate? I would say keep your eyes wide, wide open. You know, eyes and ears, really. And uh, I mean, look at look at look what happened to me. Like, you know, it doesn't doesn't pay. You know, even if I did get a like, even if I never had to tell the truth, like, you know, sitting on those lies, like I wouldn't want to sit on those lies, even if I never got caught. You know, for the rest of my life, sitting on those lies, telling people that I did it clean and. Yeah, no, no I thanks. Have, no I thanks. have a confession <laughs> yeah. because I have three small children and I mean, we talk about our family values, you know, as just honesty and respect cool. and, yeah. you know, being tough, a lot similar to yours. And I'm terrified. I mean, you grew up, I mean, you had a strong family and, yeah. and, um, and it is like this world of manipulation and that you got suckered into it and you did. But I'm just scared that, like, if we raise our kids with such family values, how, you know, like, how as parents can we still be a part of that or help prevent that? I mean, yeah. I mean, I think you need to um, just keep the, di- keep the dialogue go- going, really. You know, I mean, I wish, um, I wish some of my mentors had sort of spoken to me before I went over to Europe and told me what to watch out for. I had no idea what I was getting myself into what was on the horizon, you know, but wow, you know, maybe I'll race in the Tour de France. That was, and maybe I'll get a number, you know, and I can show my, maybe my kids someday or something like that. Like, and I thought that was going to be my first tour and my last tour and that was it. Um, but yeah, I wish somebody had sat me down and yeah, kind of, um, told me what to watch out for. But you know, these days with the internet, you know, I mean, there's a lot more information out there back then you didn't know like i didn't i didn't really know what to expect yeah you always kind of heard like over in europe maybe they're doping i don't know but no one really knew until you got there and then you know it's far away from home you know living in a yeah far away land and you know i was at the time I was a young kid and you know shame on this whole system for of course allowing that to happen i mean i made the choice i made the choice that i knew was wrong but i still like when you're young and wide-eyed and they're dangling the tour like a carrot in front of you you know shame on them but. i agree do you consider yourself brave for coming forward um i don't no i, I, I felt like i did what i had to do and it was I, no i don't i just it was what i should have done a long time ago um i mean obviously it was extremely hard and uh but i yeah i knew my I had those values in me and, you know, I, I walked away from them for a while and, but it was time to like get back to my, like my true self more or less and just be, be open and honest and be able to look in the mirror and like, okay, this is who I am now and, you know, be okay with it. But for a while, yeah, it was a, it was a constant battle, you know? Well, I can say that, I mean, we're, we're fans of you because you have told the truth and you're just, your heart is so repentive and I feel like there's so much we can learn from you. So, oh, well, I appreciate it. Well, congratulations to you guys for what you're doing. It's, that's awesome. I'm Thank a- you. I do have to say that we met three years ago for the first time and I was very nervous to meet you because I was still in this really, really angry phase Yeah, and I was sort of rude to you. I have to admit. You and, were? um, <laughs> I don't remember that. Um, I don't remember you being rude. Okay, good. <laughs> But I just want to say that, like, I left that lunch with you and was so grateful for it because I started to realize, kind like, 
the choices you made were bad, but you're not a bad person. Yeah. And it really helped me to see that just have empathy in the situation that not everybody's situation is the same and that good people can make bad choices. And that in the end, all you can really do is do the right thing moving forward. And you really changed my perspective on a lot of things. I was willing to meet with the Stepanovs after that, which I wasn't before them. And so I just do want to thank you for your honesty because you've helped me be less angry and to, to just see that it is a, it's a big system, not necessarily just like these evil little seeds. Um, so thank you. And then I just wanted to give you a chance to tell us what do you do now? Oh yeah. Um, well yeah, I live in Missoula, Montana, moved up there like seven, a little over seven years ago. Um, but I just started this summer working for a, a financial advisory group in Denver called the Black Swift Group. Um, kind of learning a whole new business. Um, really good people, small, like boutique, like company. And, uh, so I'm working from afar, but I come down probably once a month down to the Boulder, Denver area and, um, spend three, four, five days with the company and, uh, lots of, yeah, learning a lot. I'm having a lot of fun, different, totally different challenge. Uh, and it's a great team environment there. And so I like that a lot. Um, and I've been studying really hard for what's called your Series 65 exam. And I'm taking that on Monday. Oh, yeah. good luck. And I was, studying this <laughs> I was studying this morning at Alfalfa's. <laughs> nice. And um, yeah, so something new and different. I do have a small training business. I have a head coach that kind of runs it. Um, it's, you know, it's, that's a way to kind of give back to the sport and you know, to telling people the right ways to do it. Train hard, rest hard, watch your diet, doing it the right way. Um, I spent a lot of time on the, the fight against MS, multiple sclerosis. Um, I'll be driving up to Vail this afternoon to do, do a board meeting up there. It's called a Can Do MS. Um, they uh, help people suffering with them, MS and their support partners, basically how to live like a, a better life. Um, yeah, the, the founder was this guy named, by the name of Jimmy Hugo. He was a ski racer in the, um, in the 60s and early 70s. He was, uh, he won a, what was he? He won a bronze medal in the slalom in 64. By 68, he had double vision. He was in the Olympic, in, uh, this, in the start, start gate of the Olympic slalom, and he was seeing, had double vision. If you know what a slalom looks like, it's, there's tons <laughs> of gates, so like to see double. So wow. he had to close one eye, and he, he did his Olympic slalom run in 68 with one eye. Um, he, pa he became a good friend of mine, actually in 2004, right after I had the positive test. He was in like a full care facility and uh, I believe it was in Broomfield. And uh, he was a big help for me because, you know, seeing what he was going through and compared to what I was going through was, you know, night and day. And uh, yeah, he helped me a lot. He unfortunately passed away in 2010. But yeah, he's, he's why um, yeah, I think about him a lot. Yep, awesome person. I just want to kind of end on this note. You said one time, and it was, I think it captured it really well. You said all this like lying and cheating and manipulation and all this drugs that you didn't know were going to, you know, ultimately do to your body for yeah. a bike race. Yeah. Oh, I, for a bike race. I mean, right. it, it really it's just pathetic. sums yeah. it. It yeah. sums it up though, because in the, in every athlete's world, it's such a big deal, but I think that sums it up for anybody who really like thinks of going down that yeah. um, route that, ultimately it's for a and bike race or right, running your race. career short do the right thing you know it's regardless even if you have a su successful successful career it's a small part of your life like you've the rest of your life to live and you know if you do it the wrong way you have the rest of your life to sit on those you know lies 
And for me, I don't know about for everybody, but for me, they were eating me up from the inside out, you know, of course. and I'll, you know, a lot of lies, you know, come to the surface, you know, maybe not 10 years later, maybe not 20 years later, but you know, I think hopefully more of the truth comes out. I'd like to see more of it come out, you know, way more. So would we, you know, that's, I mean, that's a way to move forward to, you know, protect all clean athletes and the, and the younger generations coming up to the ranks. Like we owe it to them. I owe it to them, you know, to like, share my story, you know, help them make the right decisions, you know. Like it's like you. global warming and all that, right? Right. If we don't, don't do something now, like it's up to us. It's up to us. So it's up to us. And thank you guys for what you're doing. Awesome. So. Well, thank you, Tyler. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Keep sharing your story. Yes. I, I thank will, you for sitting on our little podcast. We really yeah. appreciate little podcast. it. You guys are going somewhere <laughs> fast. fast. <laughs> thank you, so Tyler. Much. Thank you, guys. So there you go. Tyler Hamilton, everyone. Thanks to him for joining and for being so honest and candid about his experiences. And of course, thanks to Shanna and Kara for leading this one as I couldn't make this interview, unfortunately, but, but they were more than capable of taking it on without me and did an awesome job. And of course, thanks to you, the audience for listening and sharing. I will say that you are having impact, especially as it talk, as we talk about the clean sport collective pledge, we've had new brands actually signing up. Very recently, including Newton Running, UCAN, Tafosi Optics, as well as others who are signing the pledge and joining the conversation to support Clean Sport. Of course, you can sign the pledge as well if you go to cleansport.org or send your friends, your sponsors, the brands you like to buy, the brands you like to buy to the site as well to sign the pledge and to follow along. Of course, you can also check us out on social media at cleansportco. That's at CleanSportCO on Twitter or Instagram to listen in, to join the conversation, to get updates on all things clean sport. We really appreciate you all engaging and, of course, for listening every week. So with that, we'll leave you. Look out for another episode next week, and we will talk to you soon.